Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's presentation of Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters around the world and across the fruited plains. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe N2CX, and for the next hour or so, we'll be uh, uh, guiding the discussion and uh, asking questions and fielding uh, fielding other answers on, on the topic for tonight, which is Morse code and or CW. Is it a dying art or a thriving specialty? So we had some fun putting this one together here tonight because Morse code, CW, uh, radio telegraphy in general is a topic that is uh, probably so familiar to most of us, yet not as many of us operate it, that, that basic uh, capability that most of us started with as hams, uh, no longer required on the air, but uh, in order to get a ticket, I mean. And uh, as a result, it, it's sort of falling by the wayside as an old and archaic and unused uh, uh, language of ham radio. However, those of us who are in, uh, uh, who do utilize the CW mode, A1 or so, and uh, and have fun doing it. Like I said in the intro on the, on the white page, you can go just about any night, especially on weekends and especially on contest weekends, and you would really be fooled because there are thousands of uh, QSOs in progress. And sometimes you can hardly find a spot, an empty spot in the band. So I think, uh, in my mind, CW... Radio telegraphy is is well in uh, is is alive and well. I enjoy it. It's my primary mode. I don't say it's my only mode. I've actually picked up a mic a couple of times, but uh, I know that Joe and I just about exclusively use uh, uh, CW when we're on the air, and we enjoy the heck out of it. It's like a second language. Most of you guys know this and can appreciate it. So the tonight's topic uh, and, and the material on the whiteboard is. Um, essentially going to be reviewing um, the topic overall. And then we're going to drill down in some things and, and areas of the technology, whether it's uh, equipment or whether it is technique or whether it is uh, uh, the actual language itself. We're going to touch on all of these. And even if you're an old hand uh, at the uh, at the art of CW mode, and Morse code copying. Um, we think that you're going to be surprised by some of the material that we've got here tonight. And um, if not, we really offer the mic to you and ask for your comments and and uh, input along the way, because by no means we know everything. One tends in this hobby to really stay with the equipment and the techniques and that you know and work for you. But <clears throat> oftentimes, other techniques work for other people, too. So we're going to cover a broad range here today. Um, Joe, do you want to kind of uh, maybe augment the uh, the summary and then, then dive in at the top? Certainly, George. Yeah. Yeah, Morse uh, has been with us from the very early days. Uh, started, of course, with uh, Morse telegraphy uh, uh, along the, uh, the railroads was uh, first widespread communications, uh, electrical communications scheme. And uh, when radio came along, it was the easiest thing to implement to uh, to get the 
uh, information across uh, radio waves, uh, just keying on and off a uh, transmitter. Uh, voice eventually came along, but um, it had a, the history of uh, Morse telegraphers from uh, the wire lines and uh, caught on with radio and uh, developed its own cachet. Uh, those of you who've uh, had the opportunity at uh, several, several ARRL conventions, they fire up an old SparkCap transmitter, and um, uh, that <laughs> it, it gets the old um, nostalgia juices, uh, juices going. It's really fun to listen to. But it is uh, definitely a part of ham radio that has continued, and uh, there are a number of uh, folks who um, still enjoy it, uh, use more technology these days to make it uh, simpler to operate. Uh, but the basics of it are the same. Uh, the idea is you have some sort of device that keys a carrier on and off, and uh, there's a code that consists of uh, dits and das, short and long uh, characters, as we're all familiar, in various patterns that uh, uh, make up the, uh, the alphabet. And uh, numbers and some uh, pro signs, some some uh, punctuation type marks. There are there are uh, characters that are international, but much much of what goes on in the air, at least in ham radio, is uh, in if not in English, it's in uh, in a uh, kind of Morse code shorthand that uh, uh, operators from most languages can understand. Um, lots of fun uh, has its own thing and. Uh, Certainly, uh, uh, if, you, if you see somebody in operation with it, um, uh, commercially, as I've had the uh, fortune to do uh, several times, it's, it's really neat to somebody, see somebody going. Also had the experience of uh, operating field days years ago, and uh, they, I was young. They needed an operator to work all night, so they'd keep swapping me between stations, uh, between single sideband and CW. And uh, quite frankly, once you get uh, conversant with CW, uh, you don't even know what mode you're using. It's just like uh, any other kind of communication. Back to you, George. Oh, indeed, Joe. And, um, you know, we won't get into the whole theory of it, um, but the design of the International Morse Code itself um, is, is based on the frequency of characters and the ideas to represent the more frequent char uh, characters with the shortest types of transmissions. For example, the letter E, uh, dit, is the shortest character, and it tends to be, if you did the heuristics, I'm sorry, if you did the statistics for um, average types of communications, that letter comes up most often. So the idea is to have this, that be representing the shortest amount of time in a transmission. And... Uh, and, and, and so on all the way along. So uh, up to the longest character, which in this case here is uh, the zero, and uh, kind of in between there are um, the different frequencies of the characters, the frequency of them occurring in, in the sentence. So again, optimization. And that whole technique um, followed through into the digital mode communications too, whereby uh, Vericode, for example, was um, is, is a... Um, is based on the frequencies of a character appearing, and therefore you want the shortest types of transmission, hence making your communication uh, most efficient with respect to uh, to bandwidth. Now, you know, it's funny. I, um, 
Um, there, there was a time earlier uh, when I wasn't, uh, well, when I was younger, um, and I knew French. I was able to speak French quite well, and I've been able to speak CW since I was a teen. And uh, um, when I would be taking notes, shorthand notes in meetings and so on, I would flip back and I, my notes would consist of shorthand of English, shorthand of French, um, and shorthand, uh, um, uh, kind of like as Joe was saying, the uh, I forgot what you call it, Joe, but just the the shorthand sling, slang that we use um, for ham radio. For example, and, and A-N-D, instead of spelling it out, most CW operators spell it as dit, 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 E-S, and that's kind of an and. So I would write E-S when I would come to be needing to say the word and in my notes and and then when I look back at the notes, they're really quite cryptic with a combination of English, French, and CW. So I think that's kind of kind of cute. If you look at the uh, if you look at the photos here, the first ones we have are the hand keys on our whiteboard. The, the hand keys here are, are kind of interesting. Uh, some are homebrew, or you know, some are homemade. Some are really old. Some are new and fancy. Bottom line is, of course, is that it's a contact closure. That's all it is. And uh, uh, back in the earlier days, when there were no built-in keyers, and, and all you'd be doing is taking the uh, the grid voltage uh, and grounding it, um, or some other electrical signal in a tube radio, you know that high voltage usually would be present there on the uh, on the co on the uh, the metal parts of the hand key. So you'd have to kind of be careful. These days, you don't have to worry about that too much. But the principles are still the same. You're completing the circuit that either keys or turns on an oscillator or turns on a buffer stage that allows a, a free-running oscillator to go on through for, for further either mixing or uh, amplification and, and getting squirt, squirted up to your antenna and, and out into the ether. Now, you, you've, you, it's kind of interesting. Um, the reason, One of the reasons that I really get the biggest kick out of out of uh, uh, CW transmission, CW mode, is uh, because it's the easiest mode to make in electronics. It's the easiest mode to achieve in electronics, and you don't need any special mixers. And if you've got the suitable oscillators and so on, you can actually transmit. You can key the uh, the RF oscillator on and off um, without too much worry. And have the CW signal be just as readable as if it were coming from a uh, uh, Kenwood TS2000, for example. So um, uh, the simplest of radios can be built easily and in kind of dire straits, uh, emergency type of communications. A CW rig is likely going to be the, uh, the most power friendly. You can operate it the longest on a battery. It's easiest to put together out in the field or repair out in the field. And uh, when the bands are quiet, as might be in kind of an emergency situation, um, your low power CW signal is going to get through and uh, surprisingly well, as many of us QRPers know. So um, that plus uh, the language aspect of CW are the things that really intrigue me. And I think forever... Of course, I've been using a paddle, an iambic mode B paddle, and uh, well, actually, it's a it's a paddle operating with iambic B protocol or whatever. 
And uh, just this past uh, QRP afield, our New Jersey QRP club had the uh, the outing in the backyard of our normal meeting place. And uh, uh, um, one of the new fellas, uh, one, one of the club members who was new to actually getting on the air, and I and we praise him very much for putting up the antenna and getting his uh, one of, I, I forgot the rig that he was using, but Dave uh, called me over and said, hey, can you check this out and see if it's working? So I hopped on his rig, and he had a hand key. So, oh, my goodness gracious. So let's see. Terry is not with us. Uh, w. Oh, Joe, what is Terry's call sign out in Idaho? W-A-0-I-T-P in Ottumwa, Iowa. Huh, Iowa. Okay. W-A-0-I-T-P. Uh, Terry was out there. Lo and behold, it was Terry. So I made contact with Terry and he must, I think he knew my call sign, but he must have t- thought I was a total lid. And it was my fist was not that great. I was sitting in a, one of those portable chairs and the hand key was on my, on my knee. And here I hadn't used it, done the, the fist timing in a while. And I was going slow. So Dave could kind of follow along and Son of a gun, I, I made it through. Day, uh, or, uh, Terry was able to understand me. I later came back to him on my on my rig, you know, at my usual higher speed with a with a paddle, and uh, he and I chuckled at that point. Um, anyways, we uh, uh, I, I enjoy the hand paddle, and again in a pinch, two wires going together, and and uh, we'll make the contact. And that's uh, that's what the name of the game is. Sometimes is getting through. I think emergency operation is one of the big things that that we hams have uh, an onus to be ready for. That plus training our youngsters are our two main um, calls to service. Everything else in between, the fun, the building, the home brewing, the debugging, this program, it's all it's all uh, gravy and and uh, fun stuff as well. But those two items and are important. And uh, when it comes time for Getting on the air with emergencies, of course, CW, hand keys, wires together, simple transmitters, simple receivers, too, um, is is the name of that game. Joe, I, uh, can you just make a mention about bugs um, and lead me into uh, to, to paddles? We, we talked about the hand keys. Um, the bugs are an interesting derivative or evolution of, of the hand key, and it, it's, it's really quite a unique design, and there's a lot of experts out there these days. Um, Joe, I don't think that you have one, but you've operated them before, right? Oh, yes, indeed I have. Yeah, one of the handicaps with a uh, hand key was uh, uh, you're somewhat limited in the speed. Uh, uh, if you if you get reasonably good, uh, you can get up to 20 or 25 words a minute with a hand key. Uh, but just the, the action of having to pump the, uh, pump the paddle uh, to bake the characters uh, slows you down back... Uh, uh, George can recall this too. Back in the um, the old days, when you took your uh, uh, FCC extra exam, uh, you had to both send and receive Morse, and um, you had to send it with a hand key, so the uh, the examiner could tell whether or not uh, uh, you had studied well and you actually learned to send Morse well, as well as receiving it. Um, there was an innovation, um, particularly with the the military and the the uh, commercial operators who wanted to operate at higher speeds to send messages more quickly. 
they came up with something called the bug, where it had uh, a paddle that operated sideways rather than going up and down with a, uh, a straight key. Uh, if you press it to the, um, if you press the paddle to the right, it's a simple contact closure. You can use that for Dawes for the long character. But when you press it to the right, it had a, um, a mechanism there with a spring in it that would vibrate and send a string of dits as long as you had the, uh, the paddle depressed because of the spring action. So um, you, could you could send much more easily with this because you didn't have to rapidly uh, send out the dits. And let me just try something here. One of the things that developed with, uh, with a bug was that uh, people had a, a particular swing called the um, various names, but the Lake Erie swing was uh, one of the titles where the the spacing was a little um, little accentuated uh, and it sounded a bit weird. If I do this right, I can play you an audio clip so that you can hear what the, the Lake Erie swing sounded like. Let me try this. Hope that came across, but you can see the DAWs, uh, if you're familiar with Morse, the DAWs were extra long, and there was a little spacing between the DAWs and the DIT characters. That swing came to be known as the, uh, uh, as I say, the uh, Lake Erie swing. Uh, interesting note with uh, Hanke and Bugs, um, if you listen long enough, you can, you can tell who an, a given operator is, and um, that was used during... Um, uh, spy uh, listening to spy radios during the Second World War, uh, the intercept operators could actually identify individual operators of spy transmitters. So they got the extra information in, in copying the uh, spy stuff. Uh, as automation went on, uh, better ways of uh, sending Morse came along, and George is going to cover that. Yeah, indeed, Joe. That was... Uh... The the um, your Lake Erie swing came by came through real fine on the uh, audio. Thanks. Um, and I had mentioned this to you, but I thought I'd mention it here. Uh, I started. I was in my earlier days. I was, uh, I guess maybe in my middle days. I was into traffic handling in a big, big way, which, by the way, is a great way to really hone your CW skills, is by sending high uh, tra by sending traffic in CW messages in, in CW on the regular traffic nets. And uh, um, the, the better you get, the faster you go. And oftentimes the experienced operators on there can copy any speed. So if you the faster you go, they'll be able to receive it. And then they send correspondingly faster back to you. Um, these, uh, the section communications manager for Western New York, actually talking about Lake Erie, um, was a good friend, well, who he became a good friend, Bill, um, Bill Thompson, W2MTA. And uh, I, I'm not sure if Bill is still with us, but he was a marvelous individual. And uh, But he had a Lake Erie swing that, I'll tell you, came from the depths of Lake Erie and right to the edge of Niagara Falls. He, his, he would do it fast, and I can only emulate it uh, or... or, or uh, in, in a very simplistic way. His would be, you know, da da da, 
da 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 and and um this swing was just so incredibly off timing and it varied you know, the operation of the of the bug is such that you can um uh the the timing for the dits are controlled by a swinging um uh a swinging member on a like a pendulum and it uh, it'll go at a pretty fast rate or a slow rate depending on where the weight is along that arm the vibrating of the pendulum arm uh, but the da is uh controlled just merely by your fist by your hand and that uh, bill's da would vary so it was uh, quite a challenge and it was amazing that he was one of the best traffic handlers and those who tra copied his messages on a regular basis knew him and could understand him without uh, without any problems whatsoever okay let's get into the uh let's get into the dual um paddle um keyer uh, the dual handle paddle the dual paddles and uh then we can get into some of the keyers now this is kind of a fun area because this is where most of us really kind of uh built up our stuff um, that that little gem in the upper left-hand corner in the black background with the, like the plexiglass over it, that's called the Sure, S-H-U-R, uh, Sure Profi. Um, actually, the Sure Profi 2. That is mine. Oh, I love it. I've had that thing for years, and it is just a super pleasure to operate. Uh, nice heavy base, great contacts, uh, closely spaced. And uh, it works out really well. I started off in the Bencher, which is right next to it, um, and that's still in opera, still in production today. It's it's been around like forever. I forgot. Now, Joe, do you know who purchased Bencher and now now has it with their line? No, I don't recall. Could be MFJ. I wouldn't be surprised. So um, it's it's a good starter paddle. It's a good long term paddle. Um, the one next to it on the right with a nice red base, that brings back so many memories. But in the early days, well, my earlier days of NorCal, way back, it's got to be like in 96, 97, or 98, they came out with a, a thing called the NorCal Paddle, and that's it right there. So it was a kit of raw parts, really rough parts, and um, it was uh, highlighted in one of the QRPP magazines that Doug Hendricks, KI-60S, put out. And, uh, oh, there's all sorts of, uh, descriptions and how to polish those pieces. Um, um, I forgot who made the, uh, the raw pieces. Was that our friend Doug? No, I think it was a uh, five, high in five land. You're right. I can't remember him, but, um, you know, they had rough, rough cut parts. They were all black or oxidized. And the goal, and some guys really took it to extremes. Chuck Adams made a beautiful version and documented it. And uh, this might even be it. I don't know, but uh, polish those things up and uh, and uh, until they just just shown and sometimes they were plated. Um, of course, you paint the base and with bake uh, with baked on enamel type of paint. Oh, and it turned out really well, and it worked really really well too. The heavier the base, the easier it is to uh, to indeed operate. And um, below this are a couple of other ones. There's a homebrew one down there too. Uh, made out of PC board. I forgot whose that was. I built one of those. And uh, you can build PCB at right angles to each other and kind of put little springs or just depend on the tension. And this one here is just depending on the tension of the, of the uh, material for the paddle, and for the arms. 
to bring it off of the back uh, back to a neutral position and screws that would make contact with the center paddle to, uh, for the dip and the da. But it was really handy for, uh, um, oh, I think we did, and we did something like that, Joe, when we did the, um, there was a, bad, a thing called the Badger. And I had built in, we had built in a, uh, a keyer to the Badger. This is a badge that you'd wear on your shirt lapel, and it would beep with your call sign. And it, well, an LED would come on, and it's programmable, and you could actually um, make yourself a little uh, dual dual lever paddle uh, to go on that thing. But that's a homebrew version. Then they had single single letter uh, single ones there, right in the middle of the next line is something called the bushwhacker. Um, that is uh, that's the black based one, but the principles are the same. You got one handle essentially that uh, alternates between one side or the other, one side being a dit, the other being a da. And uh, instead of being two paddles that oftentimes are used to, are, they're squeezed together such so they're both making contact at the same time. And that's when the iambic operation comes into play. Uh, let's see, Joe is probably, uh, yeah, Joe, I'm going to ask you to pick it up at the iambic uh, part. Um, but the single lever is an interesting one. I've got it, I've got that one sitting right here on the bench as well, although I don't use it too much. It's just very difficult for me. I, I wanted to give it a try. And uh, from a keyer perspective, of course, uh, of course, you know, the paddles are just contact closures. So the idea is that the contact closures activate some electronics. If it's a single paddle or like a, a contact closure for a hand key, you're just generally closing the contact on an oscillator, uh, the power to an oscillator, for example, that, as I said before, kind of gets the uh, signal going onto further stages. But for paddles that have a dit and a da, um, what you're doing is um, keying the oscillator on and off at, at certain rates, at, at two different uh, intervals, either a dit interval or a da interval. And those intervals are controlled by electronics that are called keyers. And uh, oftentimes, in the past, as shown on the left, I maybe that's an MFJ, I'm not really sure, um, but the, uh, electronics were sometimes discrete. Heck, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, something here on my bench. Let's see if I can see it. Um, it is the Ico Electronic Keyer. Ico Electronic Keyer Model 717 is what I use on my, uh, my boat anchor station. And it has tubes, some tubes that operate in a flip-flop kind of, uh, arrangement. So even as far back as the boat anchors, they had, uh, they had keyers, and the dit and the dit would operate the keyer at a certain rate, and the da paddle of the of the uh, of the paddle, uh, the da side would operate it at a slower rate. So that's how you got the the regular old uh, keyed transmissions going uh, uh, from the keyer. And more modern days, on the right hand side, again, there's the bencher, and in fact, I have that one too back in the room. I don't. Uh, it needs this little 9-volt battery that's on the inside of there, and you can adjust the speed, the volume, and I think, I'm not sure if you could adjust weighting, but uh, that had a, I believe that had a Curtis keyer on the inside. The old Curtis uh, keyer, we talked about this last week or uh, last time, and uh, so instead of uh, discrete flip-flops and IC gates that uh, that performed the flip-flopping and in control of the speed, <clears throat> There was a single chip in there, 
today in the center, of course, uh, I think that's shown as the Elecraft K1 and uh, K, uh, KX1, KX1. And it's got the key, uh, the paddle built right into the side and the electronics are inside of the KX1. Of course, the electronics is in the form of software. So we see all three generations there. The fourth generation I alluded to was with the tubes. But the electronics, uh, the, um, it, it's pretty handy to still have these uh, standalone keyers around because oftentimes our QRP rigs don't always have uh, don't always have the keyer built into it, or it might not have any controller whatsoever, and we want to use our paddle, so you need an external keyer. There's a K1EL. Um, there's also oh gosh, and who made the tick keyer? Uh, it was a guy from up in Rochester, Joe. Gary Diana. Gary Diana. I forgot his call sign, but for the longest time, he made something called the TIC, the T-I-C-K, uh, the TIC keyer. It's a single chip. It's like an eight-pin dip chip. Um, and if you power it, and you got the paddle, I got the dit going in one pin, the dot coming in the other pin, and out the uh, out another pin is the is the the dit and dot is the keyed string, uh, the keyed signal that you put to your electronics. So these chips whether it's uh, Steve's K1EL or Gary's, are, are very, very handy in our small rigs. Ask about it later on. I'll get a reference up there. I've got a bunch here. I've got a bunch of ticks left over. And uh, you know, I should make those available at some time, but they were, they were very handy. Uh, Joe, let's talk about Iambic Keen, the, the, the bane of some, the, the, uh, the, um, the joy of others, and the mystery to just about everybody else in between. And the bane of... Uh... The uh, whiteboard is the damn thing hopping back to the top, as happened just as I was about to start about start talking about iambic keying. Um, as George mentioned, uh, um, electronic keyers came about uh, to get more accurate, higher speed uh, operation. And the original keyers that George was talking about, the very original keyers, you know, back in the vacuum days and vacuum tube days, and then the uh, discrete logic days. Uh, operated with a single lever uh, paddle, um, they would self-complete a dit or a da uh, with the right uh, timing. But um, there's been a, another advance uh, started with a Curtis chip, I believe, called iambic keying, where you actually squeeze the paddles together. And uh, we have a timing diagram. We have a couple timing diagrams shown here. Um, there are two modes to uh, iambic keying. There's mode A and mode B. In mode A, um, uh, I'm not real good at describing this, but uh, when you release the uh, paddles, the uh, current character being completed um, uh, completes. With mode B, uh, when you release both paddles, uh, it completes, it sticks in an extra one, I believe, of the last uh, extra character of the last paddle released. Um, quite frankly, George is uh, thrilled with uh, mode B. Um, I'm so uncoordinated that I can't handle either mode A or mode B. I prefer a single lever paddle. And uh, just incidentally, um, Scuttlebutt has it that when Curtis came out with the, um, the Curtis uh, iambic chip, they designed... Uh, mode A, as, as is mentioned in the text here. Someone else tried to duplicate it in another chip, and their implementation was, 
they misunderstood how to um, how to implement it, and they actually came out with another mode that then became mode B. So there are proponents of both modes. Um, those who are sufficiently coordinated, uh, I certainly am not among them. Um, there are proponents of both modes, and uh, indeed, if you uh, if you read. Um, there's two references on the whiteboard, one by Chuck Olson describing in a little more detail iambic A and iambic B. And then there's a, um, a piece by uh, Marshall M., uh, who uh, runs Morsex, where uh, he debunks uh, iambic keying, uh, saying that it doesn't add that much, uh, much value. Uh, for those who are proficient with, uh, with iambic keying, Indeed, once they've learned it, uh, they learned that they are much more efficient. But for someone starting up, uh, at least in Marshall's view, uh, uh, iambic kings doesn't add that much uh, value. So I'll leave it at that. Back to George for uh, more on keyboard. All right. Yep. You've got to uh, you've got to uh, kind of grow up with um, iambic keying in order to appreciate it. But like anything, you get used to it. And you become proficient, and other things become something that you're not as proficient at doing. Just bottom line of that. Let's take a break here. We haven't had much interaction just between the banter that Joe and I have had. Are there any questions? Uh, I see there's some text, but frankly, I've been busy playing around with the uh, the whiteboard. I've taken the darn refresh out, so that should not be a problem anymore. And then I finished adding the audio links for the QSO sample at the very bottom of the whiteboard. But are there any questions along here that we can uh, address before we continue onward? Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I'm curious about, uh, I guess you'd say, a pre-morph. I don't know if it is pre-morph or not, but in the very, very early days uh, when they used to uh, use spark gap transmitters that were, uh, I think, invariably broadband and covered the... Uh, the whole radio spectrum in one hit. Um, did they use Morse keys? Uh, uh, do you happen to know that? And um, what did they sound like? Was it just a, instead of a tone, was it a, uh, a series of uh, spaced clicks? Or was there actually a, a buzzy sound to it? Joe, can you comment on that? I've never really heard spark gap before and I'm I'm fairly certain of course it was just actuated with a hand key um, but uh, do you have any other details yeah um, the, um, the the spark transmitters were operated with hand keys uh, some of them keyed the voltage directly which could be rather high voltages so you could have dangerously high voltages some of the things in fact had um, a uh, paddle uh, a keying arm that was a couple feet long with a high voltage contacts inside a, a cage so that um, uh, you didn't con the operator didn't come in contact with high voltage. Others uh, used various uh, methods of uh, having relays or whatever, but they were keyed directly. And uh, the original spark stuff was raspy. Um, think of a, uh, a buzzer, you know, an ordinary electromagnetic buzzer. It sounded almost like that because uh, that's basically what you're doing. It was a, it was a buzzy zap that uh, was really an AM transmission um, that uh, was keyed on and off. Um, as 
things progressed and uh, things like the Alexanderson alternator came along, they were actually able to generate the uh, CW that was a single frequency. Uh, then you would have to use uh, some sort of BFO to listen to it. But yes, the original stuff was was just a uh, loud, raspy buzz that uh, was rather broadband. Indeed, that is interesting. I'd like to get uh, what I'll what I'll try to do after the show, after the after the after the after the show show is done. Um, what I'll try to do is find some sample audio of a spark gap. Um, somebody might have been able to recreate it in recent years and then capture it, and, and it'd be interesting to hear. Um, all right, let's let's continue on. Morse via keyboard. As time marches on, as technology marches on, and as everybody inexorably heads toward the computers and, and so on, um, here's an example of, of how we don't need no stinking computer in order to use, uh, and still we can use the, the keyboard. So the idea with the, what's shown here is the in the middle is the new PSK modem. And you can see that with the display, and uh, I don't think you can tell too much of what's on the screen at this uh, downsampled resolution. But on the bottom is a, a small keyboard that I like to take out into the field. It's, uh, oh gosh, I don't know if any of the new PSK uh, people are here that would. Dave is here. Dave, AD7JT. Is that the, what was that keyboard we call? Is that the 2377 or something? Yeah, something like that. I don't remember. I'm, I'm not at home right now, so I, I can't pick it up and look at it. Sorry. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a great idea. I got it right here. And um, lo and behold, it doesn't say anything. It's just a slimline mini keyboard. Well, whatever. We got these things like for uh, uh, $1.99 from a Korean seller on eBay. And it costs $12 to ship it. But it turned out to be really good quality. And I love taking mine on the field. I don't know, you can't tell now, but I replaced the uh, the key, uh, the, the cable. Um, the cable plugs into the modem. It's a lower gray cable um, plugged into just above where the, uh, the paddle plugs in. And... Uh, uh, it comes with a, uh, a USB connector on it, but I chopped off the cable, put a shielded mouse cable, which was a recommendation from from a buddy Milt W8NUE, the uh, namesake for the uh, for the modem, and uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have any problem with radiated RF, uh, at least being brought brought into the system by the the keyboard. But anyways, I digress. The point I wanted to bring up on this one was that the modem itself. There's a little microcontroller inside the, the new PSK modem, and it is able to um, take the serial stream from the keyboard and convert it uh, to ASCII, uh, which is the human, char uh, the human readable character form, um, and then use it inside the modem in order to uh, get converted to either the modem tones um, and certainly displayed on the display as, as the characters being typed. In fact, that is, of course, what uh, Dave 87 JT, um, that's, that's one of his areas, many areas of contributions in the modem area. But um, Morse keyboards are kind of useful by many because uh, um, takes the tedium out of uh, 
having to send, like especially in contests, having to send same data over and over, RST 599, you know, uh, number, blah, 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 section, blah, and, and your state. Um, so, A, you can type it probably faster than you can uh, uh, send it reliably, and you're doing it over and over and over again. But, B, you've got typically built in with, with most keyer types of, uh, with keyboard types of operations are memories. So, you're able to send, uh, you can preload a memory. Um, a data memory string into memory and then just repeatedly send it again and again. And some of the fancier kind can actually take a string, uh, a number that's in a string, and increment it automatically every time you access it. So that becomes your serial number that you transmit for um, for the contest. Um, so just to complete that picture, up on top is the KX1. So what we're demonstrating on there in that photo is actually using the KX1 to transmit CW from the new PSK modem in the middle as typed into the keyboard down below. And there's some other nifty modes that are involved there too, and I won't get into them, but that's the Morse keyboard. And there are many software programs on PCs that provide that same kind of translation. And, and uh, they use, uh, the earlier ones anyways, used a wiggling, uh, produced a wiggling bit on a parallel port on the computer, on the side of the computer, and then you would take that wiggling bit, put it through a transistor buffer, and then put it into the key line of your transmitter, such that whenever you press a key in the keyboard, the PC software interprets it, changes it to the Morse equivalent of that key, and uh, wiggles that bit and keys your transmitter. So that's kind of how that goes. Now, the other half of that equation is the Morse readers, just below that. One of the earlier ones, as you see, is uh, the, the MFJ461. It sort of worked, and uh, a lot of people like it and use it, and it's still in production today. Um, again, down to the bottom right, uh, below that is the new PSK modem, and um, this thing worked. We've talked about this before. It works phenomenally well. And again, this is really where Dave, uh, 87JT, uh, expertise uh, shone through absolutely stellar in his use of a software algorithm called the Gertzel function. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But there's a software software in the microcontroller in that chip that listens to, looks at the audio coming in and is able to detect how long it's on, how long it's off, and then use the, uh, the computer algorithm is able to determine the bit sequencing of, of that in order to uh, determine what is being, what, what's, what are the characters that are coming in. And it uh, displays the, uh, the characters on the screen. It also can optionally, of course, uh, uh, beep the piezo in, in time with that too. So Morse readers are, are really uh, becoming more sophisticated today, as you can even see with the K3, the KX3, right next to the, uh, to the new PSK modem. The Elecraft KX3 is a marvel, an absolute marvel of electronics. And uh, in it is a Morse reader that I'm not sure where. I don't have I don't have one of these little puppies, but somewhere's in there. Let's see, Ray here. Ray's here. Ray, can you tell us about the CW reading capability of the, your uh, KX3? Yeah, sure, uh, George. Uh, it's, it's quite good. Uh, uh, you tune uh, your CW station uh, in either by ear. There's a spot button on the transceiver, which uh, 
just generates a tone and it says, okay, this is what we're viewing the side tone and the uh, receive tone as. And when you tune the station to match that, uh, then it'll decode it. Um, secondarily, the uh, transceiver will also decode PSK31 as well as RTTY, but uh, it works fabulously on uh, Morse. In fact, I was using it just that way uh, earlier today. Uh, I don't know what sort of algorithm is, is used inside. They don't discuss that anywhere in the manufacturer's uh, books or literature, but uh, it works uh, quite well and uh, uh, it's certainly handy to have and uh, uh, designed to follow whatever speed uh, you set the uh, inbuilt uh, keyer to be uh, as a departure point at least. All right. Thanks a lot, Ray. Yeah. Um... I'm sure we will not know the algorithm or the software that's used in there, but uh, but that's okay. I've heard it works well. Joe and I were going to do some kind of a benchmarking at some point on the readability and the uh, the performance of readers. We never really got to finish off that study, but it'll be fun sometime. If we drop down next, we'll see the PC-based readers, um, the FL Digi screen, FL FLDIGI. Uh, FL Digi is a software program that very, very versatile. Many modes are supported. Of course, you need your PC in order to uh, to be running side by side with your rig. Um, but it it, it implements. Um, I'm not sure what imp what algorithm it implements, but nonetheless, uh, it could well be the Gertzel. That Gertzel function is uh, is diagrammed below that. Uh, I'm not about to describe that, but it's a Frankly, it's a very straightforward and simple um, routine to code. How you set it up, of course, and how you use the data that comes out from it is, is, is some of the trick. But the, the code itself is only like maybe 10 lines of code, of C code, that'll do that on the disk pick. And it just means you know, you're dealing with data that is held and uh, delayed and then recombined in certain manners in order to end up with uh, a peak of bins or Call it just uh, finding a um, the res call out the resonant frequency of the information that is coming across in the in the transmission, and that's that's the Gertzel's function. And then you take that on-off uh, information that comes from the Gertzel function at its uh, sweet spot, at its resonant point, if you will, and then decode that in a similar manner for on-off you know interpretation of Morse code, and, and you got yourself. Uh, uh, your algorithm. The uh, FL Digi displays it pretty nicely there on the screen. Now there are some there are advanced some... techniques. I'm sorry, was there somebody else there? Yeah, Rick, uh, I just had a comment uh, and a question. Uh, the comment being, it would seem to me that this business of being able to automatically read Morse sounds like a really great AI question, the kind of thing that, would, that people who uh, work in the artificial intelligence world would find a, a tremendous challenge because obviously we don't have to set our brains to some uh, particular word per minute uh, setup in order to uh, to receive. We can receive over a wide latitude and various tones and so forth. I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't been more research uh, done in that area. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that at that and break back to you. Oh. Rick, there, there's been plenty of research. There's been a lot of people have been trying to uh, come up to the same level of computing power as that which each of us have between our ears. 
the human brain it does an absolutely phenomenal job in decoding incoming streams of, of Morse code, and I would imagine of other things too, that is just so much more difficult to decode with uh, uh, deterministic and very, call it, uh, time-based type of uh, computing power as offered in, in the microcontrollers and such. Now, um, we were talking earlier about the uh, the Lake Erie swing of uh, of the bugs, and even uh, you can have some really weird waiting on the automatic keyers as well. Now, the more regular it is, the easier it is to ultimately decode, and you can, you know, the algorithm, the computer algorithm can calibrate to it. But it's when the noise and the fading and the QRM and the static and all of that other stuff comes in, gets added to the variability of speed and timing of the of the generator of the, of the, of the transmitter. And that's when it just gets really tough. And frankly, that's what I was saying that Joe and I were trying to baseline. And uh, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to do. So it still is a holy grail. And some do a great job. I mean, FL Digi is marvelous. So there's a lot of MIPS in those x86 and Pentium and, and quad Pentiums and whatnot inside your laptops these days. But um, still, there's nothing that beats the, uh, uh, the computation between your ears. John, you had a question. You had a question. Looking briefly at the PC-based uh, uh, Morse code decoders, are they generally generally designed to uh, interpret slower Morse code, or will they kind of handle any speed? Uh, for example, I tried one out, which was uh, coded by a Russian guy. Um, it's uh, listed on the internet to be quite popular. But I couldn't make head or tail of it. Um, any comments about? Well, um, it's funny that um, oftentimes high-speed transmission is generated by computer or automated man, um, methods. When it is automatic or generated by computer, kind of to Rick's point, is that it becomes very regular and repeatable, no matter what its quirks are. And when you have machine-to-machine -machine transmissions, those can go pretty darn fast. I mean, to answer your question directly, FL Digi, I think uh, I've been able to use it uh, up into the 40s. I, 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 when I'm well, when I'm well oiled, um, it, I can I can get into the uh, uh, the 40 words per minute pretty reliably. And I've even heard of some people going higher than that, of course, into the FL Digi using FL Digi. So I think as long as you've got a fast enough processor, that's the whole that's the whole thing. You got oftentimes these algorithms are time based, of course, and the duration of dits and dots are measured by numbers of cycles that trans cycles of the computer that transpire between those transitions. So as long as your computer is fast enough to get enough samples during the highs and the lows of the of the dits and the das, you'll you'll be okay. Um, it's generally not a problem about, about uh, in fact, machine to machine oftentimes does go fast on that purpose. Um, we, on an experimental basis, have exp have done machine to machine copy with the uh, uh, the new PSK modem at about at 50 words a minute, 
And it's kind of neat. I mean, it's a, it's more than conversational at that point. You can really type at whatever speed and it gets through and pretty darn fast. So we're working on a protocol, just as an aside, that would identify the uh, transmitter um, as being a um, having a, a new PSK modem. And if both sides of the transmission uh, have the new PSK modem are you know, you're using the, the modem, um, the speeds can be automatically synchronized and go as fast as possible. Um, it, this is Morse code-wise, of course. So uh, if it were PSK31, of course, it is gated by the PSK31 times. Um, let me do one more little section here. Joe's having some roughness to his voice today. Um, so I'll give it a little bit more of a rest and talk about some advanced Morse techniques. Sometimes... Older is new and newer is old. Uh, CCW, coherent CW. I became fascinated with uh, CCW back when, this is before PSK-31, or at least in the same dawning period of, of PSK-31, when it was called B, um, by, uh, somebody help me out here, it was called biphase transmission or something like that. And uh, it was very slow. I demonstrated this. I built up something, um, a transmitter and a decoder, and I demonstrated this at an FDIM. Oh, gosh, Joe, this is back in the not late 90s. You know, I don't even remember it, George. Yeah, I did it with Pete. Um, I can't even remember Pete's call now, but W8-something, W8KC. or um, So Pete and I were talking about, Coherent CW, and I, the link there, this will be kind of interesting, and I won't spend too much more time on it, we're running short, but uh, if you check out the link, uh, the New Jersey QRP CCW link, um, I am the official um, worldwide repository for CCW um, history, background, uh, circuits, and so on, so I've got everything there, and it, it really is, there's some good background on it, but um, uh, Bill... Uh, Ah, uh, shucks, I'm not going to remember his name either. But uh, Bill, somebody, was a um, a great promoter of it. And uh, he helped usher us into the, the PSK31 days. On the other end of the spectrum, talking about high-speed code, here's low-speed code, QRSS. The slower you go and precisely timed, the more easily uh, the receiving side is able to pull out a signal from the noise so your bandwidth can be extremely low. It's a very, very narrow sliver. So the receiving side knows where you're transmitting. And if you're synced up in time and you know when your dits come on and when your dots come on, uh, or when your dits, when you, when your dits go on and, um, when you're transmitting and when you're not transmitting, uh, it'll be able to look right at that point only at that time. So a very, it's in effect a very narrow bandwidth and thus it, is able to mask out all of the other garbage on the net. Your signal-to-noise ratio skyrockets. And there are all sorts of uh, um, QRSS um, receive and display stations showing like in that display that I have here, uh, the, the picture of the screen. You can actually see the dots and the dashes on the screen of that spectrograph over time. And it uh, uh, is very, it, it's fun for a certain amount of time and for a certain kind of people to transmit really slow and uh, to see how far your signal can go with the least amount of power. So that's that's kind of the name of that game. And uh, there's all sorts of activity. And of course, that led into 
sort of, uh, the JT65 type of uh, uh, transmissions, uh, weak signal type of propagation, totally different technique, totally different technique. But the whole principle is transmitting slow, synchronized to time, and using a very narrow bandwidth is able to let, uh, you're able to transmit with low power, and you're able to hear great distances, uh, you know, uh, signals being transmitted with that uh, technique. A little side note, George. Yeah, sure. The same basic technique of having uh, long, long uh, symbols and uh, low frequencies is used by the Navy, the U.S. Navy. Uh, I'm not sure what the current name is. It's been uh, Sanguine. It's been Seafarer. At any rate, they have transmitters that transmit in the power line frequencies that um, have an ERP of something on the order of uh, less than a milliwatt. However, at the power line frequencies, the whole Earth uh, with the uh, ionosphere above it becomes a resonant cavity. And when they transmit at those frequencies, it can, the signal can be very easily, very efficiently transmitted around the world. And if you use very, very narrow bandwidth transmission, it can be received by submarines that are submerged on the other side of the world. And that is how they send their um, very secret um, uh, launch uh, and other important uh, messages to submarines that are submerged on the other side of the world. Indeed. Um, I think that's some of that is changing or phasing out or, or something. I'm not sure. Um, that certainly had been the case and probably still is, and we don't know about it. But um, it, it's always been fascinating to, to, to know about that. You see some of that in the movies when the, when the, the subs need to come up and surface in order to get the transmissions, and maybe not all the time. But uh, some of our, our Navy friends here on... on listening to the podcast listeners or live listeners would have some some more information on that joe do you want to take it uh take a let's talk quickly about rst and uh, q signals and then we'll wrap up with a discussion of live on the air types of transmission uh, or protocols or techniques okay very good thank you george yeah and thank you for uh taking it easy on my voice tonight i'm a little little bit raspy here um among the, the things the shorthand uh, we hams use uh, is something called the um, RST, which is a, a means of uh, giving uh, sending to another operator some information on how well he's getting through. Um, the R in RST stands for readability. It's a number from 1 to 5, which uh, 1 is unreadable, 5 is perfectly readable. The S stands for signal strength from uh, a 1 being barely perceptible to a 9 being extremely strong signal. And then tone, uh, which is the character of the uh, Morse tone. Uh, not used much these days because tones are generally pretty good, but usually um, it, it would be a typical number for somebody who is reasonably um, good would be a, a 579, which is perfectly readable to moderately strong signal with perfect tone. Um, QRP guys might uh, have a lot of uh, three three nines, and uh, the the guys with a, the lots of power and uh, um, high antennas would be five nine nine all the time. There are other methods that uh, have been proposed and are proposed periodically 
because there's a lot of abuse of uh, the RST, but it is a, a shorthand way of getting across um, how well you're, uh, you're getting across, so to speak. Another thing that uh, has been used um, uh, for transmission of uh, information is the Q signals, which are um, generally three-letter uh, abbreviations. There's a, a set of them uh, beginning with Q and uh, two other letters that uh, send information. For example, QRP means um, if it's sent as a, with a question mark, it's can I decrease power. Uh, without the question mark, uh, it says I am decreasing power. QRS is the same thing for uh, uh, speed. Shall I send slower or I'm going to send slower? And various other abbreviations um, that uh, you tend to memorize so that uh, you get a, get information across very quickly to uh, to the other operator. And um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, voice operators uh, get so used to using Q signals that they use Q signals in uh, voice transmissions as well. Um, and in line with that, I'm not going to go into it a lot, but we have a couple notes here about uh, newbie practices, various the old timers. Um, you try to use, uh, old timers try to use as much, uh, many abbreviations as they can, try to be uh, rather terse with what they're sending and not uh, not sending uh, unneeded information, whereas newbies uh, not familiar try to overdo it a little bit with information. And, uh, and indeed, um, segue into what we're going to talk about next. Um, it's important when you're uh, learning CW, when you're learning to use CW, to get familiar with CW exchanges. And we have some hints uh, on the whiteboard for uh, trying to become familiar with, it, with um, CW exchanges so that um, you can use them uh, uh, much more easily. I've always found that uh, when I was trying to teach code to somebody, it's a good practice to find two guys who know each other give them both code practice oscillators, and let them, let them try to communicate between each other um, using just Morse. Uh, they get a comfort level and learn to communicate uh, much more easily that way than, than uh, just trying to do things. Uh, they're actually communicating rather than just trying to do things in isolation. Uh, over to George. So we'll talk about some sample QSOs. Yeah, I think we're going to... Um try at our next club meeting to have some audio oscillators and hand keys probably that will uh we'll have some fun um a little bit of instruction a little bit of game whatever i think we're going to give that a try and that of course brings to mind i probably mentioned it here before but it, this is a really fun time we had at one atlanticon the, the atlanticon qrp conference we had for nine years in a row um it, um, when we had the PSK-31 Beacon was the project for that year, for that weekend, that one year. And uh, everybody got a free, uh, or a low cost at any rate, uh, PSK-31 Beacon. You'd hook it up to, um, gosh, what did we hook it up to? What was driving it, Joe? Do you recall? I think we had a, didn't we have a, I don't know if we had a piezo on there or if it was just audio out. And you had to provide your own speaker. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that was it. But I'm not. I'm not sure. Oh, oh, and it was. I guess it was pre. That was it. It was pre-programmed to send a PSK string 
containing your uh, your call sign and maybe your name or something. And you would uh, wire it up to a speaker and uh, be battery operated. And in the event of the night, um, the main event, was that everybody, there were some 50 to 75 people gathered around with every whatever kind of speaker that they had. There were guys with uh, pit helmets and they had amplified, amplified speakers on top of their pit helmet. One fellow, and I don't, I don't even know who it was, brought along two stereo speakers. And I don't know how he had them by him, but you know, you know, these are the floor model stereo speakers. And the idea was that everybody was transmitting their PSK-31 at once. And sitting off at a little bit of a distance at a table was a a PC running uh, uh, with an audio input uh, that was running uh, uh, a PC, uh, a PSK-31 decoder of some sort, such that you could actually see on the screen the various uh, call signs pop up um, as it was being heard there in the room, sort of like the equivalent of a pile-up, um, a DX pile-up. And I'll tell you, that was the, 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 the funniest thing, the most memorable thing that has ever happened at the Atlanticon conferences, maybe other than uh, Rich, K7SZ's uh, presentation one year. That was a classic one, I'll tell you. That's a different story. But uh, this PSK31 uh, um, uh, pile-up was great. We had people all over the hotel coming down to see what all this warbling was. And this is what made come. This is what a CW uh, type of uh, band, when it's really busy or a contest, sounds like. It, it's everybody in there, but your ear gets calibrated. You're able to pick things out. And again, as Joe was saying, it's the standard format that, at least initially, um, that one follows during the uh, the QSO, the contact, that uh, enables you to kind of hear it. Now, what we did, what Joe and I did here, and I, there's probably some errors in there. Uh, from the standpoint of documenting and, and so on, um, is uh, we had a sample QSO, and the yellow lines on the whiteboard are uh, the transmissions. Those are that's what is being transmitted. And if you click on those yellow lines, uh, they are hot linked over to an audio file that will play through your W your Windows Media Player. So you'll actually be able to hear the first line, for example, CQ CQ CQ. DE from N2APB, N2APB, N2APBK. Now that's known as a 3x3 call, a 3x3 CQ call. So there's three CQs and three call sign mentions of my call sign and a K to go ahead. And that's that's usually pretty good. Some people call CQ forever, like CQ, 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 from N2APB. Boom. You know, you miss it, and then you got to wait through the whole thing again if if you didn't get the call sign. But a three by three is a good one. Three by two is also good when it's nice and clear conditions. So Joe comes back and he responds, says, "Hey, N2APB, this is uh, this is N2CX. Uh, good morning, and uh, thanks for the call." And I'm kind of interpreting these uh, these acronym uh, these uh, abbreviations. And actually, this is a little bit on the wordy side since we're explaining it. Uh, he says, thanks for the call. Your your um, your RST is 599-599. He repeats the important part a couple of times. And he's in Brooklawn, Brooklawn, New Jersey. His name is Joe. Joe. And the HW question mark is, so how copy now? How do you hear me? Are you hearing me okay? 
and AR is a run together uh, pro sign that says uh, the end of this transmission. Then I signed, uh, uh, I, ooh, I have that backwards. Uh, no, I don't. So Joe signs it then uh, into APB uh, from N2CX. So, um, so that's kind of broken down in the cyan um, descriptions below it. And then I come back again down below in the next yellow line. And I say, uh, hey, N2CX, this is uh, N2APB. Good morning, Joe. Your RST is 589589, and I'm in Forest Hill, Forest Hill, Maryland. Name is George, George, and how copy? HW question mark, how copy? And then I sign, you know, N2CX from N2APB. KN. K means go ahead. N means nobody else. So da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, K-N together is uh, the symbol, the pro sign, or maybe it's a post sign. That means, uh, go ahead, Joe, nobody else break in, please. So Joe comes back and says, hey, George, uh, N2APB is N2CX. Fine business, George. Uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> um, um and then a BT, you might see a BT there, da 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 is a very common thing on, in the uh, CW circles. We use that to kind of break, uh, break thoughts. It's like equivalent to a, a period or a comma or a dash or just breaking the thought. Nice to meet you, da 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 da. The rig here is a Kenwood TS570D at QRP 5 watt level into an attic random wire, da 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 breaking thought. The weather here is light, snow, it's about 33 degrees. So how copy, old man? Back to you. So that's kind of like the translation of what that CW transmission was. And by the way, when you're listening to these things, please give me a little break. Um, I'm not, I, we're sending it uh, 15 words a minute. 15. And, uh, Let's see, my transmission is the lower tone, Joe's is the higher tone. But um, I think I, I, I have trouble sending slower. I, I release the paddle before all of the dits are done. So I, instead of saying N2APB, like my B at the end, it sometimes sounds like a D with an E. Should have used a keyboard and the new PSK, George. Yeah, I could have. Yeah, except it was like 15 minutes before showtime. Um, so, oh, and there's an error. There's a K3WWP in the next transmission. That should have been, uh, oh, I didn't change those. Darn. Oh, well, you get the idea. So um, there's a Q. So follow through if you're interested and you hear a little bit of the uh, uh, the abbreviations that we use and kind of a shorthand. And uh, you'll use these an awful lot and get shorter even yet. So U, Y-O-U, is often just the letter U. Um, What's another abbreviation? Uh, a ready, R-E-A-D-Y, is often just R-D-Y. Um, see you later, or C-U-L-A-T-E-R, is often just C-U-L. So you get a you get some shorthand in there, and, and it makes the, the context go nice. And it goes quick. Um, Joe, there was a uh, there was a uh, a contest on the late night show at some time, I don't know what, Johnny Carson or uh, somebody, where they had texting speed, a contest between texting versus Morse code. Uh, can you give us the brief recap of that one? Sure. It was uh, Jay Leno's show. 
what they had was um, a couple hams, high-speed hams, and uh, a, um, a a paddle to a uh, to an oscillator, uh, with them sending a message, and then against them was um, a couple um, teenagers or twenty-somes trying to text the same message, and it had to be no abbreviations; it was all of the text, so it had to all be spelled out, and. Uh, the uh, the hams were able to transmit this thing and uh, receive it um, uh, exactly, wrote it down at about 25 words a minute, um, and, and that actually got across before the uh, the texting was uh, three quarters of the way through. It was quite classic. It was it was good. In fact, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube at some point. So we'll wrap it up here tonight. Um, and uh, point to a very, very extensive references section here. So if you have any kind of uh, inkling to drill into some of these things here, there's a boatload of really good reference material, uh, sources of information, sources of background on the Curtis Keyers, how to zero beat. I mean, there's so much for such a simple concept, such as on-off keying, that CW is or radio telegraphy is. There's just so much information that, that we didn't even touch on here tonight that is interesting and of value. Um, how does zero beat? Um, what are the issues with zero beating? Um, what's Farnsworth? Uh, Farnsworth keying and code groups and as far as learning the CW code. Uh, if you recall, if some of you recall back to a way earlier session of chat with the designers, you'll You'll remember that we were talking about the rookie, um, the rookie kit, um, remote on-off keying, rookie, and the rookie uh, had there was there's like three or four different programs that could actually fit into the little, the teeny little pickaxe controller on that board. One of the programs, done by a, a very good friend of the club who's now a silent key, um, he programmed. The Farnsworth Keying uh, algorithm in there. So if you get this, like, I forgot what it is, $10, $15 kit, you put the software in, download it from the uh, from the web page, the Rookie web page, and you turn it on, and it starts sending random groups of uh, random characters in groups of I think five or or something, whatever the Farnsworth uh, technique is. So if you're learning CW, what a great way! to have kind of random code being generated right there on your bench with a $10 or $15 kit. Um, it's really hard to beat that. Um, you can probably do it with a PC, but, you know, whatever. And uh, Morse code for amateurs, a lot of good stuff on this in uh, ARRL um, pages. There's a background, the Zen and Art of Radio Telegraphy. I forgot who it was, Armand. Armand, thank you very much for those two links. Uh, I uh, reference 13 <laughs> and reference 13. Um, uh, those are great backgrounders. Oh, they're so good. I, I kind of read those on the way home tonight uh, from work. I, I take transportation. So um, I can read while, while traveling. And there's there's good stuff on there. So peruse it and enjoy it. It's, a, it's an aspect, it's a communications aspect of a hobby that is so hard to explain to others. So hard. Um, you talk to people who don't know ham radio and you say you do Morse code and they just like, why? And then there's just no simple answer to that. But we know here 
uh, about Morse code, radio telegraphy, the beauty of it, the technology of it, the simplicity of it, the the rhythm of it, the uh, the subtleties of it, uh, the abbreviations and the way to get through, uh, the dit dits at the end, and why do you say hi hi all the time um, in Morse code? Sound a little bit crazy if you say that in phone all the time, but nonetheless, uh, why why do you say hi h i and um, it's just uh, it's an aspect of the hobby that in my mind is never going to go away, no matter how uh, how many people there are on the bands that use it, no matter how many people come in and say, oh, we don't need no stinking uh, CW. It's 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 a joy, and I I wouldn't do ham radio in any other way, other than perhaps uh, digital modes with a DSP. But uh, nonetheless, this is this is fun, and I hope you all enjoy. If you do the ham, if you do the uh, the CW and the Morse code. I hope you really enjoy it as much as Joe and I do in, uh, over the years. And if you got some good information, some good references that we haven't covered here, I'd love to collect it and we can put it here on the whiteboard for later use by everybody else. Please pump it over and uh, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll add it to it. Joe, do you want to kind of wrap it up and just just say good night and uh, um, thank everybody and that'll probably do it. Okay, very good. Yeah. I'd- I want to add two things. Uh, George is talking about the links. I have a couple links that uh, I don't think he put in there that I probably got to him too late. Um, Coast Guard and uh, ships used to use 500 kilohertz uh, transmission, Morse. Uh, it's been discontinued back uh, last century. But um, there are some links to uh, some files from the last days of the 500 kilohertz stuff. And uh, and to a um, uh, set of remembrances from a guy who operated a uh, uh, Coast Guard transmitter in Hawaii that are fascinating uh, fascinating to look at, uh, even if you don't understand Morse, uh, particularly the uh, reminiscences of the uh, Coast Guard station in Hawaii are uh, fascinating to read. But at any rate, we uh, we try to present some uh, info on Morse, give you a little taste of. Uh, the things we think are interesting and a uh, wide variety of uh, information on Morse, uh, various things you can do and uh, um, how you can implement it uh, with uh, modern technology. Thank you all for uh, listening tonight, and um, we'll see you again in two weeks, 7-3. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.